Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. I pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning again and welcome. I'm Father Jim, for those who don't know me. Father Kalen and Deacon Robert, I hope, are asleep. They made the long journey through the night from the Synod, the annual meeting of the diocese, near Atlanta. So I'm hoping they're sleeping. And if they show up, I'm going to have to talk with them. It was planned long ago that I would conduct the services today. Our message today is from 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter, beginning at the 13th verse, through the third chapter, the fifth verse. But in order to get there, we need to go to some other places first. What I'd say to you today is that we need to stand firm. Stand firm. Each Sunday, we proclaim the mystery of faith. We all know it. Let's just say it now. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And He will come again. He will come again. But the Thessalonian service, but the Thessalonian church, were frightened. They didn't know whether they had missed Him or not. What did they believe? What do we believe? Paul addresses their fear, the fear that had gripped their church. And how are we to address fear? Paul writes to help them with their confusion. But we have to go back to the beginning of chapter 2. There's a Bible in your pew if you wish to follow along. The first verse says, Now concerning the coming of the Lord and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. The Thessalonian church was confused, confused about the end of the age, That is, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ Christ, and and the gathering up of the church to Him. Paul had already given extended clarifications in 1 Thessalonians, and now he tells them plainly, they have not missed the coming of the Lord. They should not become easily alarmed over a false teaching. Apparently, someone sent them a letter signed in His name that Jesus had come and had left without them. Well, Paul answers this, and he outlines several events that must occur before Jesus returns. They'd become confused because they couldn't distinguish between their present troubles and those of the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is described by the prophets, many of the prophets in the Old Testament. 
I'm going to read from Zephaniah, the first chapter, beginning at the 14th verse. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blasts and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end. He will make all the inhabitants of the earth. Are you awake? Whew. I don't want to be there. I don't want to be there. But the church of Thessalonica feared that that's what they were experiencing. Now you understand they were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. And they couldn't tell the difference between the persecution they were receiving and the kinds of things that I just read to you. He warned them not to be deceived. They shouldn't be deceived by any person, and no matter how credible he might appear to be or by the way anyone might present his teaching. All Christians can be misled by impressive personalities and spectacular appeals. The cure for heresy is truth. And so Paul injects it. He refers to three events which must occur before the judgment day of the Lord. They are the apostasy, the revealing of the man of lawlessness, and the removal of restraint against lawlessness. Now, the first event is the apostasy. It's the revolt, the departure, the abandoning of faith. This rebellion which will take place within the professing church will be a departure from the truth that God has revealed in His Word. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. The second event is the revelation of the man of lawlessness. He will be fully associated with and characterized by lawlessness, that is, sin. He's also described as the man doomed to destruction. He will seek to replace the worship of true God and even false gods with the worship of Him. He'll proclaim Himself to be God. He'll set Himself up on God's throne 
and the inner sanctuary of God's temple. This man is also called the beast coming out of the sea, a scarlet beast, the beast, a pseudo-Christ, the anti-Christ. And he's hostile, hostile to Jesus. He'll be a real human being, not an ideology, not a succession of individuals. He'll be a person. Now, the third event is the restraint on the revelation of the man of lawlessness. Paul had told them about this restraint when he was with them. But in this letter, he doesn't state what the restraint is. Sometimes the fact that he didn't is known as one of the mysteries of the New Testament, that we don't know exactly what he was referring to. But they did. Perhaps the restraint is from the Holy Spirit as he indwells and works through Christians who hold back the tide of lawlessness in society. The powerful person will be destroyed by the mere breath of the Lord Jesus. The Antichrist may control mankind, but he will be no match for our Lord. The very breathing of the glorified Jesus will slay the lawless one like the blast of a fiery furnace, as Hebert described it. He will be killed, and his work will be destroyed, brought to nothing. The shining forth of Christ's presence, when he comes to earth, will immobilize the Antichrist program. The lawless one will be empowered by Satan and characterized by Satan's method, which is counterfeiting. Satan's desire to counterfeit God's miracles in the world can be traced from Genesis to Revelation. The Antichrist will demonstrate miracles. He'll demonstrate powers and wonders. Everyone will see he has supernatural power. People will stand in awe of him. His miracles are not the only thing that will deceive people into thinking he has divine power. Everything he does will mislead people, especially those whose minds are blinded to the truth. These people do not believe God's word. Not everything the Antichrist does will be perceived as evil, but it will be evil because it misrepresents the truth. It leads people away from worshiping God. It will appear to unbelievers living on the earth at that time that he is indeed God. He'll be able to pass himself off as God and receive worship as God. Those who are being deceived by the man of sin perish as a result of their refusal to love the truth of God. They refuse to accept the free gift of salvation. Their own choice brings about their condemnation. There is an inherent attractiveness of the saving gospel of Jesus, but the unbelievers refuse it. The truth contrasts with the lies of the man of sin. The consequence of believing and loving the truth is salvation. God desires that all be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But when people refuse to entertain the truth, he lets them pursue their experience 
and lets them experience the consequences of that falsehood. In fact, God, as the judge of men, begins this judgment at the moment of their rebellion, and he subjects them to the powerful delusion. This delusion comes from choosing error over truth. They choose to believe the lie, and God sends them the delusion that is inherent in their choice. The lie is the claim that the man of lawlessness is God. The purpose of God in acting this way is to execute justice. Eternal condemnation will be the fate of all who choose to disbelieve the truth, who delight in wickedness. The opposite of believing the truth is delighting in wickedness. Paul's primary concern, of course, is for the unbelievers who will be living when the man of sin will be revealed. But these principles of God's judgment apply in all ages and can be seen right now. Now, if you wish, you can follow along with me in your service booklet. Chapter 2, the 13th verse, contrasts all of what I've told you with his love for the believers, the Thessalonian church. He felt a strong obligation to thank God on their behalf continually. They were his brothers and sisters in faith. They were loved by the Lord, though hated and persecuted by their neighbors. Paul was joyous because God had chosen the Thessalonian believers for eternal salvation. From the beginning, that is, before the creation of the world, God chose them, not on the basis of their love for him or by any virtue in them, but because of his love for them. This means God uses his Holy Spirit to set aside chosen individual he loves, for lives of holiness and separation from sin. The Holy Spirit regenerates. He indwells. He baptizes Christians into the body of Christ. Our part is simply to believe. The Holy Spirit then uses the Word of God to purify the believer's life. God called the readers to salvation through the good news proclaimed by the missionaries to Thessalonica. God's purpose in doing so was that the believers might one day share the splendor and honor that Jesus Christ now enjoys sitting at the right hand of the Father. In view of their calling, the Thessalonian believers were to maintain their present position of faith in God, to care for the brethren and hope for the imminent return of Jesus. <clears throat> they were to stand firm. Christians are in constant danger of being pulled away by an ungodly culture. They're also prone to let the truths they know and the relationship they enjoy with God simply grow cold. They need to vigorously hold on to what they've been taught. The Thessalonians were in danger of losing their grip. They were in danger of slipping backward. Because of the pressures of their trials and the daily negative influences of the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
In the face of the Thessalonians' need for steadfastness, Paul prayed that God would give them encouragement and strength. God's love and grace is the foundation for eternal encouragement in the face of any temporary distress. God gives hope for the future. And that hope is good, for it assures believers in the return of our victorious Savior. Paul had two desires for them. They needed comfort and encouragement, and they needed God's grace. The Thessalonians needed prayer in their temptations, but they also needed to pray for others. And if you don't hear anything else I say today, I want you to hear this. They needed to pray for other people. When we're in some sort of adversity, when we're sick, when we're scared, when we're hurting, when we're frightened, the thing we can do is to pray for other people, as crazy as that might sound. You see, when we pray for someone else, we ask Jesus to minister to them. We can't, but we ask him to. And in the process of him ministering to them, he ministers to us. Now, we don't pray for them because we want him to minister to us, but it just happens. And all of you intercessors out there, you know what I'm talking about. You can't outgive God. So as you seek to bless your brothers and your sisters, you get blessed. The apostles were in need of prayer. Our apostle, Bishop Frank, when he was here, I felt the need to pray a blessing for him. The blessing I prayed for him was that hearts would be softened. The people that he would be preaching to and teaching at the Synod would hear him. That was what I prayed for him. Father Galen needs that prayer. Deacon Robert needs that prayer. I need that prayer. All of the ministers of the gospel need that prayer. That hearts and minds will be open to receive. The only one who can do that is God. Paul did not feel distraught over the present situation in the Thessalonian church. He was confident. The reason for his confidence was the faithfulness of God. Not the faithfulness of the Thessalonians. Nope. It was the character of God. It has to be the basis for our confidence. Paul could rest in assurance that he would provide strength. God would provide strength to withstand temptation and trials and protection from the adversary and his emissaries, that is, evil men. Paul was confident the Thessalonians would continue to obey his instructions. He was not relying upon their inherent power to do what was right. But since the believers were in Christ, the Lord would work in them to react favorably to this letter that he wrote. Paul prays that Jesus will open up the way for the readers to obey out of a growing appreciation of God's love for them and their love for God. He prays for increasing endurance in the midst of trials. He points to our Lord's example of perseverance. 
Meditation on the love of God and the patient endurance of Christ motivates Christians to obey His Word and to endure trials patiently. And so today I say to you, if you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you fear, you'll not be ready when Jesus returns. I ask that you please talk with me. Please talk with one of the ministers here. Don't pass this opportunity. I'll meet with you. I'll pray with you. We all need Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we have confidence in you to provide us with strength and endurance so that we may stand firm in the truth of the gospel. Deliver us from evil. Let us not grow cold. And prepare us for the glorious day of your return. I pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.